and we've been in a series in Isaiah, and I realize if you're just visiting with us this morning, it can kind of feel like you're coming in on a conversation that's already started, but that's okay. We'll help you join into this in Isaiah chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 to you as this is a continuation of chapter 7, God's picture of his coming judgment, and he's foretelling that he's going to judge Israel and how it's going to happen, and he does it in a way that encourages them, hopefully, to repent, and we'll look at how we can respond to God's message here as well. So Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Then the Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore behold. The Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Let's pray together. Lord, how we ask for insight and your wisdom to be clear to us as we consider your word. Humble us under your word that we might listen, heed, and obey all for your glory we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. On the edge of our property, there's an electrical line and a Swallow-tailed kite likes to hang out there. Now, I'm not talking about a kite with a string. I'm talking about a little bird of prey. You might mistake it for a morning dove, but he likes to hang out on that wire, and he's hunting. He's observing the edge of the field and looking for something to eat. And so I frequently see this swallow-tailed kite hanging out there, and you know what's ironic and funny with how God works. This morning, we pulled out from our driveway, coming to church, didn't see the swallow-tailed kite, no, saw a full, uh, fully grown red-shouldered hawk about this big, right as we pulled out, come up off the ground and take his place where that kite likes to hang out. And I'm telling you that because Really, as you look at this passage, 
God is portrayed here as the hawk. He is the one. He is the predator. And he's coming in on the prey. We read about, in verse 8, the outspread wings, the no place to run, no place to hide. And this is God bringing judgment against his people. And it's a passage, and we're going to talk about this. Well, what's our response to this? Well, I'll tell you a lot of people's response when we think about God as judge. I'll tell you a lot of people's response. I'm just not comfortable with that. Right? Have you heard people tell you, I, I'm just not comfortable with that? Or, or closely akin to that, my God would never judge like that. Well, I got news for you. The God of the Bible would judge like that. And I also have news for you, and this will help you navigate the world and you know, the postmodern world that we live in or the post-everything world are living. Anytime you hear someone say, I'm just not comfortable with that, you know you have left the realm of objectivity and truth and biblical ethics, and now you are in the realm of subjectivity and how someone feels about it. Now, I get that Comfort is certainly an idol in our day and age. People are obsessed with their own comfort. But instead of you and I saying, I'm not comfortable with that, let's communicate why. Let's ground that not in our subjectivity, but in biblical truth and biblical ethics. Let's tell people why we're not comfortable with something happening. But regardless, you see, God doesn't ask permission here to portray himself as judge. The God of the Bible is not concerned with what people are comfortable with or not comfortable with. He is like the predator, and he's coming in to judge. And what's our response? Because God is the judge, the question this morning is, how are we going to respond? How will we respond? And we're going to learn how to, in part, through Isaiah's response to God's judgment. And so the first thing I'm going to show you here, and there's an outline in, in the bulletin if you want to follow along. First thing I'll show you is the response is to follow God with your family. And this is in verses 1 through 4. Look in verse 1, then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet, write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Aren't you glad I took all that Hebrew? <laughs> anyway, it's four Hebrew words all smashed together. Speedy, spoil, pray, hastens. Four words all together. And God is telling Isaiah here, write it. I, I mean, I know it's anachronistic, but this is like, make a billboard and put these four Hebrew words on it. And then in verse 2, we read, not only should he do that, he should get Uriah the priest and Zechariah to witness that this is written. And the reason for that is the timing. God wants to prove his sovereign power, and so he asks for the writing of these four words, and then two people to witness that it has taken place. Now, maher shalal, speedy spoil, what's, what's the meaning here? 
it means the Assyrians are going to come in and they're going to invade the northern kingdom of Israel and they're going to invade Syria and they're not even going to pay attention to the warfare. They're just going to skip to the reward part, the spoil part. In ancient warfare, if you beat the other guys, you got all their goods, you got all their stuff. And so this is communicating speedy spoil a foregone conclusion. This is what will take place. God is going to work this out. We're going to skip the warfare part and just get to the spoil, is the communication. And then Hashbaz, uh, the prey hastens. The implication here is the prey can run, but the predator is faster. God is going to catch them. Uh, for sure. So that's the interpretation of it. And we read in verse 3, oh, now it gets personal. Making the billboard, this gets real personal. Verse 3, and I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maharshalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, the spoil of Samaria, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So the timing of what God is commanding, showing that he's the sovereign God, able to implement judgment through other nations and getting them to do exactly his bidding, he is prophesying this as proof of his power and as an invitation we'll see in a bit later, an invitation to repent. And so verse 3, we see this involves Isaiah's family. It's very personal. If you don't believe it's personal, ask me my opinion on what you should name your next kid. Nobody does that. And yet Isaiah follows, doesn't he? He does the very thing Israel should have been doing all along in heeding, listening, and obeying to what God has for them. But it's not Isaiah alone, is it? No, it's the prophetess, his wife. Now, we don't have any uh, prophecies that his wife would have uttered, but she's given this title. I think it's an honorary title because she's involved in the ministry too. And her contribution here, she bears a son. Now, we know both of Isaiah's sons, because we met his other son in Isaiah 7. He might have had other children, but it's not recorded for us here. His other son we met, Shir Jeshub, in chapter 7. And you remember, Shir Jeshub appeared with Isaiah before King Ahaz as a communication, a nonverbal communication because Shir Jeshub's name means the remnant will return. And so God was communicating to King Ahaz as Isaiah, God saves, that's what his name means, appears with Shir Jeshub, the remnant will return, that God keeps his promises. That's what's being communicated there. And then now what's being communicated through the other son, speedy spoil, this is a foregone conclusion. You can run, but you can't hide from God's judgment, pray hastens. And so we see here really the timing established of what would happen and God telling ahead of time, this is what's going to take place as Israel's judgment 
uh, judgment against Israel, the southern kingdom, for their disobedience and all that they have rejected with God. Now, it's important to follow God with your family. Certainly, we grasp that, we understand that. And some of you are in the valley of the shadow of parenting uh, right now as we speak. And I'm glad to be a little further along than that. But I've always tried to read and engage with parenting books. And this really comes from my ineptness at parenting. And God just, it's okay to laugh, God just (laughs) blessed me. You know, how did my parenting journey begin? Well, if you know me, it began with I hardly ever held a baby in my life. And then it started off with a bang, two at once, twins born. And it was, I, I've been behind ever since, ever since. And so I try to engage with parenting books and try to pick up what I can learn and grow with. And so recently um, I read the number one, number one and number three books on parenting uh, on Amazon. I read those. So number one book is called Raising Good Humans, and the number three book uh, that I read is called Good Inside. Okay, I'm going to talk about these two books as it relates to really how we follow God and how we engage in, you know, parenting is so important, isn't it? Next to the Holy Spirit, your family is the second greatest influence on your life. And so parenting is so important. And here's the deal. This is, this is what our society offers, these two books, uh, for the parenting endeavor, Raising Good Humans and Good Inside. And even by the title, you already know. These are books that deny key biblical principles. You are already out on left field before the game even begins. And I'm not saying you can't learn. I want to be, oh, I want to be kind and generous. And you can read these books and, yeah, certainly learn from them and go for it. You know, see what you can pick up. But here's the deal. The purpose of parenting is not to raise a good human. If, if that's what you're after, you've already missed it. And, you know, parenting is important, and so is grandparenting. And many of you are in that mode of grandparenting, blessed that way. But the purpose of parenting is the glory of God. What is even a good human? What's your definition of good there? And so the glory of God is the end of parenting, the goal of parenting. It's not that your kids would get good jobs. We hope that that they would go to college or whatever, earn a lot of money. These are not the goals of parenting. The goal of parenting, not to raise a good human, but the glory of God. And then, do I need, need to even say anything about a book written about children that says good inside? That's the title. Clearly, does not know children. Might have all these degrees and credentials and be a professional counselor, but come on, you do not know the kids I know or the kid I was. But the idea behind this book is that if you can commend what's good inside of a kid, this is helpful or whatever, but the reality is what's broken inside of us 
is not going to be fixed through commendation or through positive affirmation. Only Jesus can do that. And so both books deny key principles and why key biblical principles. And why I'm talking about that is, you know, when you're desperate, when you're in the valley of the shadow of parenting and you're desperate for help, if this is all we have to help, that's not very good. That's not enough to take on what I think is a very difficult culture that we are trying to raise godly children in. And so it's kind of like going to a race, but you show up at the wrong starting line. So I think you got to have these key biblical principles in mind. And, and what are those? Those are in opposition to uh, these two books, the goal of parenting, not to create a good human, but to give glory to God. And then the other goal in parenting is to recognize, to recognize that there's something broken in all people that walk this earth except Jesus Christ, and we need what Jesus has provided, atonement for our sins, resurrection power in order to overcome that which isn't good inside. And really, what would we replace that with? Because the Bible says precious little about parenting. And I think the presuppositional, foundational thing that we need to embrace as parents is Psalm 127.3. And we read there in Psalm 127.3, children are a heritage of the Lord. Children are a gift from God. And if we as parents endeavor to raise our children and pass on our, raise our children in a way that they glorify God, and then uh, we pass on our faith to them, which is so important for that new generation, we've got to embrace that they are a gift from God. And so Psalm 127.3. And then not only are children a gift from God, we ought to, and this comes from Jesus' invitation in Matthew 19.14, Matthew 19, 14, we read, Jesus says, Let the little children come unto me, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Letting the children come is to give them opportunity to grow in their faith, to hear the gospel, to shepherd their heart and walk with them through life in distinctly Christian ways. And both these principles, receiving our Children as a gift and letting our children come to Jesus, both are denied with abortion. Have you noticed that? You see, abortion doesn't receive a child as a gift, and abortion certainly doesn't let the little children come unto me, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And so you see why the battle is being fought this way. And so I commend you. I mean, I remember those days in the valley of the shadow of parenting, and that is, that is rough, and that is tiring and exhausting, absolutely worth it, and our children are precious to us. And I want to encourage you parents, hey, we got Mother's Morning Out happening uh, in March, and I want to encourage you to be in this community as you raise children together. You see, Isaiah wasn't alone. Isn't that good news? Chapter 8, verse 2, who's he got with him? Uriah the priest and Zechariah. He's not alone in this faith community as he attempts to obey and follow God in these ways, even with a name like Maher Shalal Hashbaz. He follows God. 
with that. And so let me encourage you as parents, receive those children as a gift. See them nurtured in the church community for certain. So follow God with your family. That's what's encouraged here as we see Isaiah's example of the very thing God's people aren't doing. We see Isaiah doing that. And then the second thing here, and this is in verses 5 through 8. So how are we going to respond to God's judgment told to us beforehand? Follow God with our family and then heed the warning. This is in verses 5 through 8. God is so gracious and merciful to give us, this is what's going to happen ahead of time. It's a warning that they would respond. Remember back to chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God is inviting his people to come in repentance to heed the warning. But it's the very thing they aren't doing or paying attention to. You know, I was minding my own business at my desk. You know, my office is over in the Life Center, and it has a beautiful view of this uh, field next door to us. And I was looking out the window one day a couple weeks ago, and I saw a beautiful doe deer running by, just very graceful running by. And I thought, oh, that's odd because, you know, hill country deer, they're pretty chill and usually just sauntering around. And this deer was jumping and running fast. And so I kind of looked out there, and about three seconds later, my neighbor's two dogs are in pursuit. I don't know how they got here, but my two neighbor's dogs, tongues hanging out, Deer is doing fine. Deer has a good lead on them, but those dogs are gassed. And they, the deer runs down to the water retention area right at the end of our property and just hops that fence, runs across Salmon Road and disappears. And the two dogs in pursuit meet up at that corner and kind of look at each other. And then they start the long jog back home. And... I tell you that because it's really the opposite of what's portrayed here. Maher Shalal Hashbaz, speedy spoil prey hastens. The idea is the prey isn't going to get away. With God, the prey can't hide and can't get away. And so the idea is that we would heed the warning, that we would pay attention, that we would look and we would say, okay, now's my chance. But what does Israel do? They refuse. Look at verse 5. They don't heed the warning. Verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. Now, what's the imagery here is Jerusalem had a water supply from springs that gently flowed, that bubbled up. And it was God's using this imagery to say it's his provision that you can trust in. This gentle, sustaining provision of that which gives us life, water. He has provided that for his people. And what have they done? They've said no to it. They've refused it. And instead they rejoice, look at the end of verse 6, 
over resin in the son of Remaliah. Now, you've got to go back to chapter 7 for that. Uh, chapter 7, resin, verse 1, resin is the king of Syria, Pekah the son of Remaliah. That's in chapter 7, verse 1 in the imagery here. And what's being talked about is you remember resin and Pekah wanted to join forces in order to resist the Assyrian invasion. And they were going to make war with the southern kingdom to compel them to join forces with them. And so the temptation is, are you going to trust in this earthly alliance or are you going to trust in God's providence and his protection? And so what's being said here is they're trusting in Rezin, the son of Remaliah. Uh, they're trusting in the alliance that they're able to form rather than the supernatural power of God to deliver. And so they've refused God's provision, God's protection in the gentle, wonderful, merciful way he provides it. And they've sought by their own effort to form alliances and trust in earthly leaders. So verse 7, what's God going to do? Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. So instead of the gently flowing spring... We've got the mighty Euphrates, the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And what's going to happen? It's portrayed here, this invasion of Assyria is portrayed as a flood that comes in. So you can kind of think the contrast to make sense to us. You've got the Cooper's Crossing at the Cibolo Nature Center, you know, that area, very gentle flowing. And then you've got the Guadalupe River at flood stage. That's the difference. And it is their own fault that they have refused what God has provided them. And they've refused to heed the warning that God has for them. But at the end of this passage there in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, we get a glimmer of hope. Oh, Emmanuel. And you remember Emmanuel from chapter 7, verse 14. This is the sign that God is with his people. And so notice here in verse 5, they're called this people. Frequently, God will call his people my people. But because of their sin, he's distanced himself from them. They're this people. And that's part of the warning here. That's part of the invitation to change but at the end, he still says, Emmanuel, that he is with them, even in spite of their resistance and their sin. And the application for us is that you can't get away with God, with God's judgment. The application for us is to listen and heed the warning that there is a way to destruction and we should repent, cast ourselves on Christ if you are prideful, if you are stubborn, if you are hard-hearted or hard-headed, this is your invitation to trust in Him, to turn from your sin, to cast yourself on Christ, to ask God. Even in those hard and difficult moments where we get very resistant with God, to ask God to change you, to ask God for help and to trust in him. Isn't it God's mercy and love that he tells 
his people, here's what's going to happen ahead of time. This is the judgment that's coming. And he tells them that, that they would change and repent and turn to him. They're not going to get away. They're not going to be able to escape. And we learn that from the name that is given to Isaiah's son. And so heed the warning. So we're talking about God's coming judgment. And we're talking about what is the way we should respond to it. And first we see we should follow God with our family. We should heed the warning. And in the last, last point here is we should trust in Emmanuel. To trust in Emmanuel. Not only is Emmanuel used there at the end of verse 8, but also the end of verse 10. For God is with us. If you look in verse 9, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. So to be shattered is to be broken in a way you can't put it back together again. Drop a glass, drop a plate. You're not gluing it back together again. It's shattered. It's too late. Give ear, verse 9, all you far countries. So God is displaying his power through the judgment on a world stage so that even those who are far away can recognize and see his power and turn and be healed. Then you get this at the end of verse 9, exact repetition. This is rare in the scripture to have this sort of double repeating of a statement. And what do we get at the end of verse 9? Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. In other words, go ahead, put on your armor. You can fight, but you cannot stand up against God. Strap on your armor. Go ahead. And it's emblematic of all our human efforts to resist God and come up against them. They will not be successful. It will be in vain that you put on your armor and try to rely on and trust in your own effort. It's not going to work. You're still going to be shattered. And then look at verse 10. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Strap on your armor, human activity and effort to save ourselves, to rectify our situation is hopeless, but so is... And you kind of see this shown every day in Washington, D.C. So is grabbing all the finest minds and trying to solve problems. How's that working out for us? Take counsel together, but it will what? Come to nothing. It will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. In other words, this is a communication that not only is God with his people, in spite of their pride, in spite of their sin, but God is with his people to demonstrate his power through this coming judgment and invite them in mercy and love to change course, to repent, to turn to him, to be healed. Trust is how you begin the Christian life. And verses 9 and 10 are an invitation to stop trusting in your own efforts. Strap on your armor. And it's an invitation to stop trusting in human wisdom. Take counsel together. Oh, if we just get the greatest minds together, we can figure it out. Oh, if we just educate people better, they'll end up being good humans. Yeah, that's not working out, is it? The uh, futility 
and the vanity of taking counsel together is shown here. It will come to nothing. Speak a word, it will not stand. God is with us. God is in control. God is sovereignly powerful to execute his will. And the invitation to us is to trust. Instead of trusting ourselves and our effort and what we can do together through human ingenuity and education, Trust is how you begin the Christian life. We cast ourselves on Christ, trusting what he has done for us at the cross and in defeating sin and death. We trust. That's how we begin the Christian life. But you know what else? It's how we live the Christian life every day. And that's the invitation to God's people here that they would trust. Trust is our response to the impending judgment of God, to follow God with your family, to heed that warning and repent before it's too late, and to trust in the fact that indeed God is with us. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you that ahead of time you have pronounced your judgment, and this is all because of your grace and your mercy, and we pray we would be responsive to that in the way we raise our children and our grandchildren, that we would follow you with our family. We pray we would not be so prideful and hard-hearted and hard-headed, that we would hear and heed the warning and repent of our sins, turning away from our sin to you. And we pray too that you would help us to trust in you, that we would not trust in our own efforts or human ingenuity, but we would turn to you in trust because, and we celebrate this, because you are with us. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.